Speaking of really lame, uh, we're in week three of an interesting sermon series. Do you know, fun fact, that if you grew up in a small town, you are more likely to end up being famous or preeminent in your field than if you grew up in a large town? Weird, hey? If you grew up in a small town, you're more likely to go and reach the heights and hit the top level of the thing that you're trying to be good at. There are various reasons for this, um, but Jordan Peterson the most rock star, I was getting some interesting feedback on social media, I called him the most rock star psychologist since Dr. Phil, um, which I think is rude to both Dr. Phil and Jordan Peterson, because uh, they couldn't be more different, different. But Jordan Peterson, interesting psychologist, has loads of interesting stuff to say, love him or hate him, uh, you've got to face up to some of the interesting ideas that he presents. Um, and he has a, an interesting explanation for that strange statistical anomaly. He says that if you grew up in a small town, you're much more likely to have found the right combination of game and opponents to be able to win. You're much more likely to have had the serotonin-inducing experience of conquering some challenge. And if you're bad at this and bad at this, you're likely to still be good at something else uh, and find your niche and be able to be the very best at something if you're in a small town. You can be the smartest kid or the fastest runner or the most competent mother or the biggest plumber or whatever it might be in a small town. Um, Whereas if you are truly one in a million in Durban, you're probably still one of three, and if you include Peter Maritzburg in that, then you might not even be in the top three, especially if it has to do with drinking, because Peter Maritzburg are really good at that. Um, and I don't say that just because I studied there, although that might give me some insight into that, but statistically, they, or never mind. Uh, Maritzburg, we love you. Um, but if you grew up in New York, and you truly had a one in a million talent, you're still probably one of 20. You might not even be in the top 10 despite the fact that you're one in a million at that thing. If you grew up in a large town, if you grew up in a big city, the chances of you having that serotonin-infused experience of, ah, I won at something, are so much lower. And you need those positive moments, the endorphins of feeling like everyone appreciates what you're doing, if you're going to have the grit to actually stick at turning yourself from substandard into average at something, never mind above average or exceptional at something, if you're going to do your 10,000 hours or whatever else it is you're supposed to do to become truly world-class at something, you're going to need to have some great experiences in your locker to get you through those moments. And even if you did grow up in the shelter of a small town uh, and you've been able to stick at something, the problem is now there's really no such thing as a small town, is there? You can compare yourself on any metric you choose to the entire 9 billion residents of planet Earth, can't you? At any moment, you can go, well, I thought I was good at this, but there's someone else who's so much better at that than me. Um, even if you get to the top of your little pile, your industry, your town, your city, your, maybe you're the best in South Africa or something, all that ever does is puts you on a peak high enough that you can see other mountain ranges where they don't even know about you yet. And say you conquer Hollywood. Say you win the World Cup. Say you become the president of the United States, if that's what you're really aiming at. There will still be a moment even if you're the best in the world at something, where the little critical voice inside your head starts up its little tune. You know the little critical voice. Really, you think you're that great. How long do you think before the next young thing comes up and deposes you from your throne? How long do you think anyone's really going to remember the thing that you've just done? Compared to the pantheon of greats in all time and to come in the future, how good do you really think you are? I like to imagine possibly maybe because I'm just so jealous of Lionel Messi, the best footballer currently playing football. I like to imagine that even he, inside his mind, has the same little voice that I have inside my mind, except that I haven't done anything particularly impressive like he has. But imagine you've conquered the world. You've still probably got the little voice inside going, yeah, okay, great, but what if they really knew you? Yeah, sure, you're so wonderful, but Maradona won a World Cup, Pele won three, and even if you won five World Cups, they would still not know what goes on inside your head. Think about the thing about yourself that you'd love to change the most. 
And there's probably a little voice attached to that going, uh, you're a fraud. You smile so nicely, you go to church, you go to work, you, you seem to achieve, but if they could see you in front of the mirror when you're not sucking your tummy in, or if they could see you with the makeup off, if they could just see the state of your finances, they wouldn't think so highly of you. What a, you can't even get this right. How on earth do you expect anyone to take you seriously? Do you know this little voice? Are you familiar with it? I'm sorry, but I suspect you are. I'm sorry to have raised the profile of that voice inside your head. But if the rest of the world judges you harshly, the little internal critical voice is dreadful. It takes it to a whole art form because you can be criticized by that little internal voice about stuff that the rest of the world could never know. Your internal voice can criticize you about your motives and your deepest, darkest fears and desires, stuff that the rest of the world has no business judging you for, the little voice inside you judges you for that stuff. And not only does it criticize you for that stuff, it holds up the standard of perfection and then shows how far you are from perfection and punishes you for it. There's no gray area with the little critical voice inside your mind. There's no shades of success. There's either failure, abject, fraud, or perfect. And if you're wondering, I'm not sure, Paul, I don't know, I'm not really as inward-focused as you, maybe. One of the ways to find it, as I said, was to think about the thing you want to change, yourself, change about yourself the most. Another way to find what might be going on inside is think about the stuff that frustrates you the most, where you get most angry, most offensive, most outraged. Those things are almost always when someone in the world had the temerity, the the stupidity to agree with the little voice in your head for a second, to tune you for the same thing that you've been tuning yourself for, to threaten to withhold the same thing from you that the little voice inside your head has been threatening to withhold from you. Lo and behold, maybe they're criticizing you for the same thing you've been criticizing yourself for. And in that moment, you'll go one of two ways. I've got to prove them wrong. I'm going to outperform. I'm going to do better than they even hoped. I'm going to live up to their expectations even more because I've got to drown them out and the little internal voice. Or you'll blow a fuse. How dare you? How stupid of you to criticize me on that. If we're going to talk about perfection, I'm just going to start criticizing you. And this little competition, I'm going to show that actually you are far more whatever than I am. Does this resonate at all? Does this sound vaguely familiar? We judge ourselves so harshly. And we're going to get to just the most fascinating line that the Apostle Paul has on this thing. Um, but from a psychological perspective, this is referred to as the internalized parent. So the little critical voice inside your head that probably made you brush your teeth this morning, you didn't choose that, you didn't plan to do it, you just ended up doing it and you're not sure why, but you were nervous that some little voice was going to scold you if you didn't brush your teeth. might sound a bit like your mom. Or the little voice that you're worried is going to spot your finances and see how bad you are sticking to your budgets or paying those fines. It's probably your dad's voice that's threatening to tap you on the shoulder for that. Or when you have to accept that invitation from those in-laws or be spoken badly to by your selfish younger sibling and you just take it and you take it. And you're not really sure why you take it. But there's a little voice inside yourself saying, well, you better be the son you're supposed to be, be the daughter you're supposed to be, be the cousin you're supposed to be. There's a little voice that might sound like a combination of your mom or your dad or your first boss or your first teacher. Maybe that little voice sometimes sounds like what you think God would say. But there's some troubling things about having a little parent gnawing away inside your mind. And if you are like the vast majority of people, you probably do have some little internalized parent scolding you. And maybe you don't listen to that as much, but you certainly are aware of what society might be scolding you for. Either way, we tend to respond in the same ways. So stick with me on the psychology, right? This will just be interesting at some point, even if you disagree with all of it. Um, I'm going to make a little list on the 
screen of the ways that we respond. Most of us, if this little voice is nagging us, judging us, holding up perfection, showing the difference between us and perfection, and then mocking us for it or punishing us for it or scolding us, then we will respond to that sort of parental voice like any kid would. The first option, the first way that you might respond is with compliance. So you'll go, fine, I'll, I'll live up. And despite everything I've said, compliance is actually really nice because getting instructions is really comforting. It means you don't have to choose. You don't have to take full responsibility. Being told what to do makes us feel quite safe, if we're honest. It allows us to abdicate some responsibility and go, well, I got told I had to, so I'm just obeying the rules. And so some of us go the compliant route, and we try to live up, because then there's the chance that I might get rewarded. And there's the lovely possibility that I could judge other people who've not done as well as me. So compliance is great. I'll live up. I'll meet the standards. You're probably the A-type best student. You're the, you know dream employee, you might be pretty scary to work for, to be honest, because your empathy skills are not that great, but if someone else is giving you rules, you love to live up to them, and toe the line, be the good person. Even though back at the ranch, you're probably bitter and twisted and grumbling about these unfair expectations that are being put on you, before everyone else, you love to live up to them. But the problem with compliance is that you are subtly giving away your freedom all the time, aren't you? No one wants to really be controlled. So I like living up to rules because I like the idea that I can be told what to do and meet the standards required of me, possibly get a reward, avoid punishment. It's comfy and safe. There's structure. I don't have to make too many choices. I just say yes, sir, no, sir. But then a part of me rebels against that because you were designed for freedom, not to be controlled. You were designed to be fully responsible for your own life, not actually to give away responsibility to other people or even if it's another person who's just a voice inside your head. So the other option, like with all children, is manipulation, where you respond on the surface by obeying the rules. Yeah, yeah, I love it, I love it. Yeah, yeah, I'll do whatever you say. But back behind the scenes, you'll take the shortcuts, you'll pick and choose, you want to have your cake and eat it. Do you recognize this at all? And so this way of responding is probably familiar for most of us, where we're hoping we don't get found out for the fact that actually we don't obey the rules quite as much as we say we do. We don't like all the good things we really say we like. Um, and unfortunately, we do end up getting exposed at some point. And if I ever were to expose you, or if you were ever to expose me for this sort of hypocritical, hypocritical response to the rules, I would have all sorts of reasons to defend it. Well, the expectations are way too high anyway. Well, I'm still better than so-and-so, and look where my honesty got me. And but the chances are you're pretty good at hiding it, so those moments won't come very often. There is a third way to respond to high, high expectations and the kind of cruel, punishing little voice, and that's full rebellion, which is what some children do. They don't want to play the game. They don't go the manipulative route and pretend that you know, they obey the rules while actually back at the ranch they're going their own way. They just flat out say, the rules are dumb, the game is stupid, the people who are in charge of it aren't being honest themselves, I'm going my own way. The only thing I'm going to obey is my appetite. And adults do this. And we, as a society who quite enjoys rules, shun those people and mock the hedonists and the rebellious, irresponsible folks. I want to suggest to you that maybe they're a little more honest than the rest of us. The rest of us are obeying rules we don't even believe in. At least they have the honesty to go, oh, bugger. <laughs> and there's something quite scary about them. Because us rule followers who are trying to climb the ladder and keep the whole glass house intact find them terrifying because they force us to ask some questions we don't want to ask. Why is it that I brushed my teeth this morning and then moaned about it and it was only me who was policing me in the first place? And so the rebel who just never brushes their teeth, right, and rocks up at church with stinky breath, it's like, why are we going to mock this person? They are in many ways more free than us. But the nihilist, the rebellious kind of everything goes person does have some problems to come, just like the little kid who runs away from home and then discovers it's quite scary. If you decide that everything's meaningless and to throw off the constraints, 
you will quite quickly, and I say this not as some theoretical thing, but my brother, who I love and respect, is going through this exact moment right now and told me really amazingly and vulnerably, he used to be the good kid, he was compliant, got better marks than me, was nicer and more well-liked than me, um, didn't hurt people, did the things he was supposed to do, and now has found himself going, but all the stuff I used to believe that got me there, the faith that I used to believe that, that got me there, the, the social contract that I sort of signed up for, I don't believe in any of that stuff anymore. And as his faith has fallen over, he realized that for a while he was doing the manipulative thing. So he was still obeying the rules even though he didn't really believe in them and started taking the odd shortcut. And now my brother is in the full rebellious phase, having gone hedonistic, done whatever he felt like doing, and found it totally meaningless. And the thing he said to me I found so fascinating is that it's terrifying not to be able to trust yourself. If you go full rebel, if you decide that the only thing to obey, the only honest thing is your appetites and desires, the trouble with that is your appetites and desires can change, can't they? So if that's the only thing that's true about you, then future you could look very different from current you. And all of us make our choices, all of us make our decisions based on the idea that, well, I'll probably always like that, and I would never want to do that. I'm this kind of person, I would never do that kind of thing. My brother was saying to me, you have no idea how scary it is when you realize you can't even say that, because today you might not want that, but tomorrow you might. And without any set of standards or rules or expectations, there's no telling what tomorrow I might feel like doing. I used to be the good kid, now I'm hurt people. I used to be the good student, now I've got no motivation for work. I used to be all these things, the Christian pastor's son, and now I'm not those. And it's, it's a terrifying runaway from home place to live, because if it's all meaningless, if the nihilists and the hedonists are right, why choose anything? If nothing is actually better and nothing is actually worse, why do anything? Why move anywhere unless value is actually real, unless some things are really better than other things? And if some things are better than other things, some behaviors are better than other behaviors, some outcomes are better than other outcomes, then you are admitting, even if you just want to be able to choose at all between options, and you are admitting that there's a better and a worse, which means that there's a right and there's a wrong. And so the rebel is probably more honest, but often ends up in a scary place compared to us compliant ones. Because although we're being a little irresponsible and we're just obeying the rules, at least the rules make us feel safe. Give us a way to trust who future me is going to be. Okay? Philosophical, interesting. Those are the childlike ways to react. But subtly, underneath all of this, there is this massive problem, which is that all of what we're doing is in reaction to some other set of rules that we didn't choose. Think about your own life. Think about how much time you spend reacting to, being bitter about, trying to live up to standards that you didn't pick in the first place. Possibly even enforcing rules on yourself that you don't believe in. Then feeling resentful about that, how dare they expect so much of me. Lashing out when people criticize you in an area that you feel insecure about. That whole conversation is actually quite childlike because I haven't decided to take full responsibility for the things I think are worth chasing after, and full responsibility for the places where I'm weak. So there is an adult way to respond, right? We're going to stick with our philosophy, and then we'll get to what the Apostle Paul had to say. Just like there are three childlike reactions to this high standard holding you to perfection that's probably inside your head but might also be in society, there's some adult ways to respond to that as well. And I suppose there's a clue in that. I suspect these are slightly better ways for you to respond. Um, and so here's number one, legalism. Legalism says, no, the rules are right. I'm not going to be bummed about the rules. I'm not going to be oppressed by the rules. I'm not going to live up to some rules that someone else chose for me. I believe the rules are right, and they're worth living up to, and I'm going to strive and strain and try and get towards perfection because I believe that there will be a reward at the end, and I believe that there's punishment if I don't. I, I, I accept the rules. I choose the rules, and now I'm going to submit myself to those rules full on. 
That's one option available to you. And that's a healthier option than the compliant kid who goes through the motions of keeping up with the rules but doesn't really know why he or she believes in them. Trouble with legalism is you, isn't it? What we saw last week. The law, yeah, even if it's a great law, even if you pick a really good one, God's one, for example, your chances of living up to it are nil, which means that your choosing the legalistic route is going to cause insecurity when it's not causing pride. So legalism is one option, by all means, you're probably going to disappoint yourself and none of us are going to like being around you as you go that route. So option number two is the one that our friend Jordan Peterson proposes and I think it's fascinating. It's called negotiation. You get a little kind to yourself. You go, okay, I am flawed. I am not going to be one in a million at anything. Even if you do live in New York, even if you come from a small town, you're not going to get to perfection. Release yourself from the pressure to be perfect. Tell the little voice inside your head, no, what are you talking about? There's not perfection and failure. There's all kinds of gray area in between. Stop telling me to compare myself to perfection. Maybe I get to compare myself to who I was yesterday. Have I made some progress? Am I getting somewhere? No, I don't have to obey all the rules, but I do get to choose a few that I value. Now, society has a whole bunch of rules I don't like, but I'm going to pick a few of the ones in society to try to live up to, because if I don't try to live up to any of the rules society seems to like, then I'm not going to find a place in that society, and I want to be in that society, so I'll have a go at some of the rules, but I'll be kind to myself. I'll, I'll give myself permission to take small steps. I'll set little goals for myself. I can't tell you how wise and helpful this way of living is. Something that you were resenting in the past, examine it. Why do I feel I have to do that? Okay, I do think it's valuable, fair enough. Then I'm not gonna try and get to perfection tomorrow and crack the whip if I don't. I'm gonna make small agreements with myself and reward myself when I get there. Being kind to yourself isn't so much about giving yourself nice treats. It's actually about learning to say nice things to yourself. Hey, good job, we got there. You're not perfect yet, work in progress, doing my best. And then when everyone else starts accusing you of stuff or when the little internal voice starts accusing you of stuff, you get to negotiate with that and say, no, I, I don't care about that, but I do care about this. Helpful, interesting, the negotiation option. Does sound a bit lonely, though. Does sound a little like your only sense of satisfaction is when you're going to live up to it. It sounds like a watered-down version of the legalism thing to me. There's another way, and here's where we're going to go to the Apostle Paul, which takes, I think, what's wonderful about the relief of Jordan Peterson's negotiation plan and also accepts that there are some objective rights and wrongs because the negotiation one sounds like it's all up for grabs. You get to choose it. But here's how the Apostle Paul thought you could live that was absolutely free, a totally free way to live. It's a fascinating little verse in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. Okay, so he's thrown off the, I'm not going to comply, I'm not going to try and live up to someone else's standards. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. But Paul's saying, not only am I going to take off the pressure of what you think about me, I'm actually going to take off the pressure of what I think about me. Because Paul's clocked the idea that you judge yourself far harder than anyone else will ever judge you. Paul goes, I'm just going to let go of all of that. Whew, relief. No one else gets to judge me. I'm not even going to judge myself. But then he goes on to say something fascinating. So let's expand the context here. From verse 4, my conscience is clear. So at the moment, Paul's saying, actually, even though I don't judge myself, I think I'm doing okay. But that doesn't prove I'm right. It's the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. You may have bought the idea that because human beings shouldn't judge one another, and if you're a Christian, because Jesus has taken the punishment for you, and you're no longer under any threat of being punished, that therefore judgment never happens. Here's how I think Paul is seeing things. He goes, okay, you don't get to judge me. 
I don't get to judge myself, but I'm going to volunteer for some judgment from my father who loves me. I'm going to ask him to examine me and decide. That's a strange idea. Some of you growing up in church, you're going, no, 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 God doesn't judge me anymore. There's no more judgment. The judgment went on to Jesus. You're so close to being right, but not quite. Punishment's off the table. Jesus bought your sins from you. They no longer belong to you. They have been punished already. If you're in Christ, then all the ways that you've fallen short of perfection have been punished. It would be illegal for God to punish you a second time for the same crime. It's already been punished. Wonderful. However, your good father, who loves you very much, does want to still judge you, does want you to give him an opportunity to speak into your life and say, that's where you're not quite, where you could be, that's where I'm heading you for. And what's at stake now are a few things. Your satisfaction in life right now, you're avoiding the consequences of living lower than you could, and rewards. It's a whole other conversation, but you have a good father who loves to reward you. Punishment's off the table, but a dialogue with a good father who says, well, when society judges you, it's brutal. When you judge yourself, it's even worse. How about I have a go? And you get to go, okay, well, when I was judging myself, it was dreadful. When I was letting society pull the, the puppet strings, I was dancing all over the place and could never live up. I wonder what it might be like to have a totally good, totally loving, totally wise father for whom punishment is off the table now enter into a dialogue with me about where I'm at. And he's not going to judge me to perfection. Jesus has already hit that mark. He's already cleared that bar. No one else is ever going to get to perfection. But I suspect God would love to have a conversation with you about what you would look like if you were fully healed and fully alive, and then start judging you towards that. You're my son. You're my daughter. I don't want you to be like anyone else. But I want you to be fully you. I want you to be fully alive. And so I get to go to my dad and go, okay, well, how did I do today? And he can put his finger on stuff in my heart and go, okay, well, that was great. I'm so proud of you. That can change. Do you see how that can change? That behavior, do you see why that was popping out? Help me, Father, I don't actually fully understand. Okay, let's dig back. Yeah, this desire, this lie that you've believed is allowing you to behave in that way. And as I willingly submit myself to loving judgment from my father, where he gets to go, that was great. Keep it up. Try harder. It'll come right soon. That wasn't so great, but you've taken steps. I'm working on you. Go to sleep. I'll work on you during the night. Tomorrow morning, we'll start again. That makes everything seem like, okay, there is a real standard. Value really exists. It's not meaningless, but there's relief. I don't have to be perfect. Make sense at all? Sound like a valuable way to live? I'm not saying you have to dive straight into that, but if you were to, if you were to dive into that way of living, then here's some of the theological basis for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. In other words, even if you were one in a million, you're not that exceptional. You're not going to be perfect. You're not that impressive. Does that disqualify you? Is that a problem? Not at all. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. Oh, but the little voice inside my head has been scolding me every time I'm foolish with my money or my relationships or my diet. The little voice inside my head that sounds a bit like my mom is always telling me that I'm not making wise choices and is cracking the whip and telling me I should be more wise. Well, apparently, according to God, if you're unwise and foolish, you're exactly who he wants. Stop trying to be something else. He chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world 
things counted as nothing at all, but I'm doing so much to not let the world despise me. I'm doing so much to seem valuable to the world. I'm working so hard to climb the ladder and obey that. No, no, no. God chose you as you really are and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. I love and appreciate what Jordan Peterson has argued for, that you get to grow up and take full responsibility, decide on your standards, negotiate with yourself, reward yourself, be kind to yourself, but that's still all about you and what you think is valuable and how well you can get yourself to grow. There's another way where a good father comes and says, well, I actually want to work with you. I want to heal you. I want to do in five minutes what it would take you 10 years of counseling to sort out. I want to do in your heart in a moment what the rest of your life of self-discipline would never quite get right. I want to judge you towards rewards. I want to judge you towards healing. I want to look at who you are, let you know who you could be if you were fully healed, fully alive, and then move you towards that. Gently, kindly, but also supernaturally and powerfully. And you don't have to cower and try and live up to perfection and feel ashamed when you don't live up to perfection. No, he loves to use the weak things. He loves to use the broken things. If you're foolish, if you're weak, if you're not impressive, you are absolutely who God needs. But now it's not like nothing matters. Paul, who was writing there, who said, I don't even judge myself and I don't let you judge me, had just come out of a context where he was talking about how hard he worked for God and how excellently he was trying to work for God, like a master builder trying to lay an excellent foundation. He's talking about the amount of effort that he and Apollos went to. Paul didn't live average. You would think that if you took the standards off, you would just become a slob. Because Paul went with this other option. Say, okay, Father, without the pressure to be perfect, Without the threat of punishment, I'd love you to engage with turning me into the best version of myself, the fully alive version of myself, still with my scars, still with my limps, still with my weaknesses, still with my past, but now with a whole different future, united with Christ. The forgiveness of God is at first a relief. The pressure's off, perfection's off. But then it's a bit like, remember um, when you were a kid and your parents would come in and whip the blanket off and throw the curtains open and go like, it's time for school. And you're like writhing. Ah, this is terrible. Who on earth does this at you know, 7.30 or whatever teenage time you were waking up? And it's this rude awakening. The forgiveness of God, I want you to try and get your head around this. At first, forgiveness is an absolute relief. Then it should start to feel a little like that because suddenly you realize there's no longer any standard telling you how you're supposed to live. No one else to blame. No one else to ask for permission. You are fully free now. You are fully grown up. What you choose to do, you've chosen to do. You didn't have to. You're not going to get punished if you don't. When you go through the motions of doing X and then feel bitter and twisted about it, you gave yourself full permission to do that. If you have been fully forgiven, then you are now fully free, which means that you have to be fully responsible if the logic flows for you. And so now you have an opportunity to either try and put some laws and rules on yourself throw them all off and live meaningless, or go, great, now that I'm fully free, fully responsible, no one left to ask permission, no one left to blame, no one else's standards to live up for, now I'm totally in the open here. Father, I would love you to come and start to judge me, heal me, change me, inspire me. And I'm so thankful that you can do that better than I can, because as I engage with you and as I strive and make an effort and fail and then know that your mercies on you tomorrow morning, you also can do supernaturally inside me 
What I can't do myself. This isn't just Christian psychology. You go to sleep, you go this after, after this sermon and we pray for you and you can stop smoking tomorrow. You can stop lusting tomorrow. Miraculous stuff can happen. And if it doesn't happen tomorrow, then there's also the opportunity of you going on an epic journey with your dad for the next 10 years, slowly but surely becoming more alive, more healed, more whole. This is the passage I want to leave with you. Matthew 11, this is Jesus speaking about what this way of life can look like. When you give up on perfection, but then you allow God to turn you into something that's not just average, but unique. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you close your eyes? The idea of no yoke at all seems appealing. Total rebellion, total meaninglessness, but we know that we would run out of motivation. We would have, actually, we'd have no way to choose, no way to even trust who we're going to be. So God, thank you that there is a standard, that value is real, that there is right, that there is wrong, that you are holy, that the standards aren't make-believe. They're as real as gravity and the temperature water boils that what is right and what is wrong what is righteous and sinful these things are true and they matter and they have consequences in our lives when we fail and yet because you are gentle and because you love us you want to set us free from striving towards perfection and failing all the time father would you come and minister your love to the people in this room right now where they've been twisting themselves in knots where we've been castigating ourselves and whipping ourselves to somehow try to be perfect when our self-talk has been you're such a you're never you're always you fraud you disappointment if they only knew Holy Spirit would you just silence that voice right now we've been reacting like children blaming and ducking and diving and then trying to live up to standards that we don't even understand or believe in judging those who don't whip the blanket off Throw the curtains open. In Jesus Christ, there is absolute forgiveness available, which means the removal of every standard. Make us totally free. And then draw us to yourself, I please. Draw us into this epic relationship with our dad who wants our best. Not judging us towards perfection with the threat of punishment, but judging us towards us, ourselves, fully alive and moving us towards that place for our own good. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you'll do that right now. Amen.